Good afternoon and welcome to the 173rd of the COVID calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Today, we have a discussion of poverty and the long-term economic impacts of the pandemic with Megan Curran and Zach Perelin. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID Calls live every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time on YouTube. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also watch COVID Calls on Facebook Live and on Periscope. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please do help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. And please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, November 19th, 2020, there are 1,356,365 deaths globally from COVID-19, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. There are 11,647,930 cases in the United States, and that's up from 11,400,796 reported yesterday. In the United States, there are now 251,756 deaths from COVID-19, up from 249,187 reported yesterday. As a way to bring some humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic, and I'd like to continue that now. The headline is, Kansas Nursing Home Faces Severe Federal Penalties After Deadly Coronavirus Outbreak. This was written by Brittany Shamas and appeared in the Washington Post October 27th. The first hint that the novel coronavirus was tearing through the nursing home in rural Kansas arrived in a Facebook post. The Anby home was in the grips of a full COVID outbreak, Administrator Megan Mapes wrote, despite the precautions we have been taking since March. But behind the walls of the facility, nursing home officials had failed to take the most basic measures to prevent the spread of the highly contagious virus after learning two residents were infected according to a blistering report released by the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, which resulted in severe penalties. By the time the viral firestorm had finished sweeping through the nursing home, all 63 residents were infected and at least 10 had died. This is as of late October. Medicare moved in late October to terminate the Anby home from its program, cutting it off from federal dollars and imposing thousands of dollars in fines. Government inspectors found that infected residents were separated from their healthy roommates by little more than a privacy sheet. Communal dining continued for days. Multiple staff members failed to wear masks even after the outbreak took hold. The Medicare report said the facility's failures had placed, quote, all residents in immediate jeopardy by the spread of COVID-19 to all residents, unquote. The virus's rampage through the nursing home came amid a surge of infections in Kansas's Norton County which led the nation in per capita case increases between October 12th and October 19th and ranked second that week, according to a post analysis. Before October 13th, the county near the Nebraska border had been spared virus-related deaths. Now there are clusters of cases at the nursing home where 55 of 70 staff members were tested positive for the virus, as well as at a correctional facility and a bank. City offices are closed, the public municipal court is postponed, and multiple businesses have temporarily shut their doors. The funeral home has posted a wave of obituaries for people who lived at the Anby home, a stained glass artist with pieces displayed around town, a one-time staffer turned resident, a skilled home cook known especially for fried chicken with all the fixins. Like many parts of rural America, the county of about 5,000 people had resisted masks and other measures aimed at preventing the spread of the coronavirus. The city police department was cheered in June after announcing it would not enforce a mask mandate imposed by Governor Laura Kelly, a Democrat. For months, many have mistakenly shared the idea that this virus would never reach our rural and lower population communities, the governor said during a news conference in late October. Now it is worse in those towns and counties than it is in our cities. 
She called the deaths at the Anby home a stark reminder of the threat posed by the virus. Medicare inspection reports suggest resistance to masks at the nursing home, a sprawling single-story facility that was rated as average by Medicare. Run as a nonprofit, the home had several health and safety deficiencies going back to 2012 records show and recently had a change in administration. When inspectors visited on May 20th on behalf of the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services more than four months before the outbreak at the home, they discovered that all staff members except one walked up and down the halls, in the dining room, in residence rooms, and at the nursing station without masks. Administrators had offered no training and issued no policies for dealing with the coronavirus. The Envy Home was cited for failing to implement measures recommended by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, a failure the inspectors wrote that placed every resident in jeopardy. By the next day, the facility was back in good standing after putting coronavirus policies and a mask requirement in place. The Centers for Disease Control, excuse me, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services fined the facility $14,860 for those failings, writing in a letter that the penalty was based on the fact that deficiencies that constitute a level of actual harm or above were found on the current survey. Representatives of the agency did not immediately respond to requests for comment on the fine. A former employee who spoke on the condition of anonymity because of fear of retribution said that even after the inspection, it remained a struggle to get people to wear PPE. Nationally, nursing homes have accounted for about 40% of COVID-19 deaths in the United States. The first sign the virus had made its way into the Anby home came October 5th when two residents began showing symptoms, according to the federal inspection report. Coronavirus rapid tests that day confirmed the infections, but the facility did not follow its own plan for containing the virus. Rather than moving ill residents to a special care unit as described in the plan, staff kept them with their roommates. It wasn't until October 7th when lab results confirmed the infections that all residents were quarantined. Many areas unscathed during earlier waves of the pandemic felt they were insulated from the pandemic, said Gianfranco Pizzino, a senior fellow at the Kansas Health Institute and health officer in Shawnee County home to Topeka. Norton County was among more than two-thirds of Kansas counties with no coronavirus restrictions as of October 15th, according to a report by the Institute. The line that I kept hearing was, what happens in Northwest Kansas is different from what happens in the Kansas City area. We can't use the same measures and the same interventions in both settings because they're too different, Pazino said. It's true, there are differences, and I'm all in favor of local control to the extent that it's possible and makes sense, but it's also true that just because they hadn't seen as many cases up until this moment really didn't make them invulnerable or protect them against the virus. For the family of Donna Hale, hearing about the outbreak at the Anby home struck fear in our hearts, said her daughter, Susan Hale of Lincoln, Nebraska. At 93 years old, she was beloved for her sense of humor. She lived at the Anby home after working there years earlier and her children had been pleased with the care. At first, she showed no symptoms, but after a few days, her condition deteriorated. The family held out hope no matter how slight, Susan Hale said. They grew more hopeful when Donna Hale, a mother of three who raised her family on a Kansas farm, seemed to perk up. She died later that day. It was horrible, her daughter said. I mean, you know you're going to lose your parents, obviously, but we wanted more time with her. We needed more time with her. Okay, let's turn to our conversation for today. Really happy to have my two guests today, Megan Curran and Zachary Perlin. Let me introduce them to you. Megan Curran and Zachary Perlin are postdoctoral research scientists at the Columbia University Center on Poverty and Social Policy. They examine policy strategies for poverty reduction and how the tax system and social safety net can better support children and families. Their recent work together has examined the impact of the pandemic and related economic relief efforts, such as the CARES Act on Families, Poverty, and Family Hardship. Megan and Zach, thanks so much for making time to join me today on COVID Calls. Hi, Scott. Thanks so much for having us. Yep. Thanks, Scott. Nice to be here. So I'd like to start the way I usually do, just to find out uh, where you're calling from and um, how the pandemic is 
looking there today. And sometimes when I have New York guests, they surprise me they're not in New York. Or <laughs> we also find out what's happening in different boroughs. So I'm excited to, to hear from you. Maybe, Megan, can I start with you on that? Sure. So um, I am in New York, um, but I'm not in New York City at the moment. I'm just above it, um, about a half an hour north, I'm staying with some family. So, um, you know, the um, the the numbers are, are picking back up here a bit. Um, you know, there's been announcements in the city and in some other areas nearby that schools are um, going remote again for um, a little while. So, you know, the numbers are, are not like they were in the spring where when New York was was having a really, really bad time. Um, but, you know, I think we're, we're all watchful and wary here in terms of trying to see where the most recent trends are going. And have you been able to be on campus at all or have you been remote from campus since March? No, remote from campus um, pretty much since, um, I guess it's before St. Patrick's Day now. So mm -hmm. yeah, the, the time has gone by quickly, but uh, yeah, no one's, no one's been back. So. Zach, same question to you. Sure, uh, currently in San Diego, California, so not very close to New York at all <laughs> at the moment, uh, but the situation is somewhat similar. It's not great. San Diego just went on to what it calls the purple zone, and uh, in short, that means a lot of indoor dining, gyms, and so on are closed once again as uh, cases continue to rise here. So it's uh, like many other parts across the country, cases are on the rise and just kind of hoping that things start to turn around pretty quickly. Just um, following up with that for a second, Zach, how are the, the politics of Southern California around the pandemic? Have they been consistent about supporting public health mandates about mask wearing or has there been some uh, local resistance there? I, I think both of those are, are true, that in general, my understanding is there has been quite a bit of advocacy around mask wearing, around maintaining social distance, uh, coming up with the Thanksgiving holidays, a lot of uh, notes of caution being put forth about meeting with large groups and getting together with family if you haven't been uh, tested in the last couple of days, these types of things. But of course, like in many other places, you do see a lot of uh, resistance on the ground as well. So I can tell you walking through uh, the parks or, you know, stopping by to, to get a coffee somewhere, you know, you do see people at times without masks. But I think the vast majority of people here and uh, like across most of, the, most of the country are doing their share. They are wearing masks. They are trying to take care. And let's hope again that um, everyone starts doing that and, and things start to turn around here pretty quickly. Were you affected by fires at all? Everything that was happening in the through the fire season in California I had a lot of guests on COVID calls who we were here to talk about one thing and we ended up talking about fires in lots of cases too. You know, I haven't, uh, I actually wasn't out here during the peak of the fire season. So I personally uh, wasn't around and wasn't affected individually, but uh, family members and of course, millions across the state were uh, not even the state, but the entire West Coast were uh, affected pretty heavily. Um, but uh, yeah, me personally, I, I've, I guess, lucky enough to have avoided that. Well, let's, let's talk a little bit about your work. And thank you both for those introductions. Um, it's interesting when I have had the opportunity to have research groups on, and you're part of the Center for Poverty and Social Policy. And, you know, the center implies that there's a center, everybody's going to a place and having conversations in the over coffee and various things. And of course, in this weird COVID time, you're all distributed. I don't know if the other, other members of your team are as well, but um, be that as it may, I'd like to hear a little bit more about the Center for Poverty and Social Policy, um, the kind of work you do, the kind of methods you use. Megan, let me, let me hear from you first on that. Sure. So um, we are a research center based at um, Columbia University. We're housed in the School of Social Work. So again, in normal times, we would all physically be in the School of Social Work, um, sitting sitting close together. Um, we've, you know, been just able to very fortunately transition to doing pretty much almost everything that we were doing, and even a bit more in terms of, you know, some of the research we'll get into today is is new work. Um, we've been able to to do that virtually, and you know we're grateful to have the tools and the support of the school, you know, to be able to do that. Um, so you know we're definitely in contact with all of our colleagues and things like that. What the mission of the center 
is in general is to basically, um, you know, provide, um, you know, up to date and informative research on poverty, um, economic insecurity, and the impact of social policy decisions on children and families. So, um, you know, we take a largely national focus in many respects, but we try and provide state level information where it's possible and the data. And we do actually have a particular spotlight on New York City just because it's where we're located and we have a good partnership with a New York City-based organization, the, the Robin Hood Foundation. Hmm. Um, in terms of issues, um, you know, we cover anything to do with sort of tracking trends in household income. Um, we look at, you know, access and eligibility, and of course, you know, the sort of impact of what are you know, traditionally known as safety net programs. So that might be different forms of cash assistance, um, housing assistance, food assistance, you know, childcare, paid leave, you know, any kind of things that, that sort of support um, families as they move throughout the different pieces of their lives. And we try and, you know, one of the biggest things is basically um, when you're capturing the impact of that is really having an underpinning understanding of what do we mean by poverty? What do we mean by economic security and insecurity? And that really gets at how we measure some of these things and how we talk about it, which I could, um, you know, turn to Zach for a bit more detail there on some of the methods. Yeah, I'll just add that uh, after the start of this crisis, we really dedicated a lot of our time and energy towards understanding changes in the socioeconomic conditions of families across the country from the beginning of the pandemic onward, particularly looking at trends in poverty rates, which I know we'll talk about here. The official estimates of poverty from the U.S. Census Bureau are, uh, of course, the gold standard. That's the primary measure of poverty that we use in the United States, but they're released with a pretty long delay. We just a couple months ago received poverty estimates from the year 2019 from the Census Bureau. And of course, 2019 feels like a, a lifetime ago. So our role has been to try to understand how can we use the data we have to make projections of what poverty rates are last month or this week or today to uh, hopefully inform the public about, again, how the country is doing in terms of socioeconomic conditions and also to inform policy decisions uh, moving forward. So maybe let's let's uh, talk a little bit about um, poverty in America pre-February. Can you just um, establish some context? You know, before the we started today, we we're having a little bit of a conversation about the fact that poverty is always an issue in public policy um, and in all domains of American life. But um, even though it's always there, it's not always treated. Uh, with policy urgency, should we say. And I was wondering if you could just sort of set the stage a little bit, you know, pre-COVID, what is the picture in terms of poverty rates, in terms of impacts on families and children, unemployment, and how well is the safety net working before February of this year? Yeah, so, you know, we know that, uh, it's, you know, it's becoming ever increasingly well documented that the pandemic is causing an economic crisis for families. Um, but I think what is maybe less just sort of acknowledged is the fact that even before the crisis, um, you know, poverty in the U.S. was, you know, arguably too high, you know, for a country, you know, as wealthy as we are. Um, and economic security was more widespread that pe than people may have realized. So, um, you know, to put some numbers behind it, we've been trying to look at some monthly um, data uh, this year. And in January of 2020, um, you know, pre-lockdowns, pre-anything like that, um, you know, we had about 50 million Americans living below the poverty line, um, you know, and we had about 13 million of those were children. Um, the rates were even higher, you know, to, you know, two or three times that amount for um, black children or Latino children. And just to, to give a baseline of what we mean when we're talking about in or out of poverty, um, the measure that we're using here is basically, you know, an average of $28,000 a year um, to support a family of four if you were living in an average cost city. So that might that line might be a bit lower if you have a smaller family, a bit higher if you have a bigger family, but that's what we mean here. So, you know, $28,000 a year for a family of four, we still had 50 million Americans living below that line in, in January. 
Um, but, you know, again, poverty is, um, you know, not a totally perfect measure. And so you can be above that line and still, you know, not feel like you can, um, you know, make ends meet or, you know, definitely put away anything in savings and things like that. So sometimes researchers talk about who's living, you know, twice um, below basically twice the poverty line. Mm. And here we're capturing even more people. Um, you Again, in January 2020, you had almost 40% of the entire country was living below that line, mm. um, twice the poverty level. So, you know, that's, you know, almost two out of every five Americans. Um, and, you know, I think getting at that, you know, how widespread it is that families would be on, you know, that sort of lower levels of income there sort of gives a bit of explanation into why all of a sudden when the crisis hits, we're seeing statistics about, you know, um, uh, huge percentages of Americans don't have enough money to cover $400 in emergencies, you know, expenses or something like that. Why all of a sudden, you know, families had to um, worry about how are they going to make their next um, rent payment or car payment or utility payment or things like that if they don't have that regular paycheck to, to rely on because it was really the regular paychecks that were keeping their heads above water, not necessarily that um, there was, you know, a huge amount of, of income coming in in general. So help me understand a little bit that that number you said against 28,000. Yeah. So, so um, for family for, four. Yeah. So for a family four, the 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 exact poverty thresholds, um, you know, vary based on family size and composition okay. and things like that. So we're kind of saying, you know, if you had two adults and two kids in the household, um, the line would be about twenty eight thousand dollars a okay. year. So if we're talking about the twice that, you know, it'd be about fifty six thousand dollars a year for the same family, and that's when we're capturing even more Americans below that line. And I'll just add that that's in a, an average cost city, something yeah. like Phoenix, Arizona. So not New York. if you go up to, exactly, not New York, not Silicon Valley, there the right. poverty thresholds will be a little bit higher. And if you uh, move to uh, less costly areas in the United States, say you're in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, the poverty threshold is going to be a little bit lower. So it does vary a, a bit across the country, depending on local housing costs. You'll have to forgive my um, insufficiency as an economist here and ask a couple more contextual questions. Is that pegged somehow to the um, federal minimum wage? Is it pegged to a sort of average cost of housing across the United States? How, what are the measures that make up um, these numbers and setting the standard for what poverty is? Yeah, in, in short, the supplemental poverty measure framework, the SPM, which we apply, is largely based on prevailing consumption norms around food, shelter, okay. clothing, and utilities, and a little bit more. So uh, an easy way to, to explain it is that there's this basket of goods out there that uh, people are spending money on that we know are important to live a decent life. And the SPM threshold is based off a, a certain percent of that uh, these average consumption standards with uh, you know a few tweaks around the edges. So once the pandemic started to hit, I can only imagine the kind of conversations you were having with your team. And I guess I'd like to know, you know, what were the sort of first measures you were looking at to try to understand the impact of the pandemic for people living in poverty or right, um, you know, on the border of poverty in the United States? Maybe Zach, could you start with that and then Megan pick it up? Sure. So the first and most apparent indicator of economic distress was the shock in the unemployment rate that we saw uh, beginning at the end of March, but really in April when the unemployment rate went from about three and a half percent in February to somewhere between 15 and 20 percent in April, uh, depending on how you uh, address a couple things um, from a measurement perspective. That's one of the highest unemployment rates we've seen in this country since the Great Depression or so. We have estimates that the share of children in this country who had a parent who was unemployed or who had both parents, if there's a two-parent family, if they had both parents unemployed, these reached record highs in April. So the initial shock of unemployment uh, was startling to everyone. And, and that, uh, of course, goes hand in hand with a lot of uh, hardship for many of these families. 
economic insecurity and distress and poverty, of course, as well. So we then turned to uh, what we do best in measuring poverty and trying to understand what this means, how many of these families are falling below the poverty line, uh, what that might mean for these families and for the country as a whole. And that's what we be began to track uh, around that time as best we could. Megan, can I bring you in on that? I mean, I'm, I'm curious to know, does it manifest itself first in terms of food insecurity and then homelessness follows? Or I, I'm sure there's maybe there's not a set pattern, but I'm, I'd like to know more about the, the red flags that go up that you say, wow, we're really entering a new phase here in terms of poverty. Yeah, I think when what this crisis has shown us, um, well, it's shown you know as as many things, um, but we see the importance of having information on multiple indicators because you know as Zach explained a little bit before, the traditional way that we measure poverty in this country, um, you know, it's usually the information is coming um, a year, you know, on a time delay, and it's also usually measured on an annual basis. So it's giving you a kind of retroactive look at how families fared over the course of the year in total, um, but it doesn't tell you anything normally about how a family is doing right, you know, um, right now or last month or might do next month or things like that. In normal times, um, that's not as big of a deal because there might not be significant changes from month to month. Um, but you know, as as uh, Zach was just talking about, with these sharp and sudden. Um, increases in, in unemployment, all of a sudden you're talking about significant income differences in households. And so, you know, the, the regular sort of poverty measures were always going to not be well suited to this. And so, um, you know, we worked very quickly to try and adapt, you know, and build some new tools in terms of, you know, forecasting what might be the current situation, trying to, you know, transform an annual measure into a monthly measure and things like that. Um, but what was really valuable were the, um, you know, existing tools that, you know, the research community and the government has to try and track things like food insecurity in particular. Um, you know, uh, Feeding America put out a um, piece of really important work very early back in the spring, um, finding that, you know, there could be as many as one in four children who are hungry. And this was, you know, back in sort of April or so. Um, and that, you know, was really valuable information because um, it gave us a sense of how deep this crisis was at the moment, but also was had the potential to be because what we also know from these hardship indicators is, um, you know, parents usually try and protect their their children first from any sort of material, you know, hardship in the home. If there's not enough to eat in a particular week or a particular day, um, we know that parents will make sure that their children eat first and, you know, the parents will go without if need be. So for all of a sudden, the numbers to kind of be showing the risk of child hunger, um, not just household hunger, to be so high, um, it just really points that you know the the scope of this crisis is much larger than um, anyone probably wanted to to imagine it would be, and it also then gives an indicator to policymakers that the scale of their response needs to to match that need. I see. I, I just want to underline something. As as we've been talking, it's been dawning on me those preliminary statistics you gave. And Zach, you were talking a minute ago with a a low, historically low unemployment rate, and you still have so many Americans in poverty. I mean, just, you know, we were talking about the baseline before we even reached the pandemic. I mean, it's absolutely startling to me to hear those, those numbers, and it indicates that there's just no slack in the system. So if you get a shock as big as what we saw in March and April, um, I mean, I'm telling, I'm explaining something. You're no longer shocked by any of this, I'm sure. But just to hear that is just absolutely stunning to me. And um, Zach, yeah. I mean, maybe maybe I sound like some of the elected officials that you try to convince all the time that this is important. But it it just, I cannot, we have so many Americans on the knife's edge. And then we have a disaster, the scale of which we haven't seen since 1918, emerge within a 30-day period. Um, yep. Unbelievable. Yeah, and, and Scott, to your point, it points here to some larger structural issues in the country that 
uh, probably should have been addressed before the start of this pandemic. You mentioned uh, that we had pretty high poverty rates in this country, despite the fact that the unemployment rate was at nearly an all-time low. And this points to a couple facts. Number one, that just because you have a job doesn't mean you're not poor. Minimum wage in this country hasn't been changed in uh, 10 years or so. There's a lot of folks out there right now who are working full-time but still struggling to get by, and that's reflected in some of the poverty statistics. Mm -hmm. Second point is, if you have a job in this country, the likelihood that you are below the poverty line is relatively high compared to what it would be in many other high-income countries. There's less of a welfare state for an unemployed individual, especially an unemployed individual without children in this country. And as a result, a lot of people who fall into unemployment are particularly likely to uh, fall into poverty and, of course, sometimes experience those hardships that we're talking about, food insecurity, the threat of eviction, and so on. And so you have a, a an increase of uh, the unemployment rate, three or fourfold increase uh, in a 30-day span. You have state unemployment systems that aren't prepared to handle this massive amount of demand for unemployment benefits. And what you have is, is exactly what we saw, large increases in food insecurity, uh, large increases in poverty uh, until the CARES Act was implemented. And I know we'll talk about that. And uh, those benefits started out, started getting out to uh, families in need. Just a reminder, you're listening to Code Calls, and I'm talking um, with Zach Perlin and Megan Curran from the Center for Poverty and Social Policy at Columbia University. And um, so that's a great segue because um, there was a relatively rapid action from the Congress and from the President in the form of the CARES Act. It's become a kind of a standard dark joke now I see it on social media all the time, people saying, oh, you know, I hope Congress acts fast because I only have a couple hundred dollars left from my CARES Act payment. Um, this, you know, for many people, it's hard to remember back that far when that was passed. Megan, could you just um, take us back into that moment, some of the politics around the CARES Act and what did it actually do and what did it accomplish? Yeah, the... Um the CARES Act is, you know, one of the most critical pieces that we have seen um, when in, in all of our kind of analysis of what happened, you know, when families went out of work so sharply back in the spring, and then what happened with the federal response that came in um, fairly quickly afterwards. Um, in terms of, you know, the sort of broad strokes of our findings, you know, we we've basically you know been able to conclude that congress did the right thing here with with the cares act and and the income supports that they put in that I'll I'll talk in more detail about um shortly um you know without that we would have seen you know huge huge spikes um unprecedented spikes in poverty um but we also know that the cares act as you just mentioned you know was um time limited and many of its key provisions have now expired and we're seeing also the impact of that now with rising poverty afterwards. So the reason actually that the CARES Act was able to stave off what basically could have been, you know, the worst, um, you know, increases in poverty in, in more than 50 years is because it, you know, was a massive response uh, in terms of injecting federal spending to um, directly to households um, right when, you know, they sort of needed it most. Two of the biggest um, income components that we looked at were the stimulus checks and the expanded unemployment benefits. So the stimulus checks were uh, payments of $1,200 for adults in the household, $500 for children in the household, as long as you were below a certain income threshold. Um, they went out fairly automatically um, if you were kind of already in the tax system. Um, there were uh, a few more hiccups for um, folks who weren't, and I can speak to that shortly as well. Um, but the expanded unemployment benefits, which have also been in, in the news for a number of months, um, were also a massive injection of, of badly needed funding because um, 
it gave three important pieces um, to the unemployment system um, that didn't exist prior. The first was that it extended the duration that you're able to access unemployment for, which we're seeing is now critical as more folks are moving into long-term unemployment. Um, it expanded coverage for people who were normally left out, so part-time workers, gig workers, you know, independent contractors, things like that. Um, also hugely important. And then the third piece, which was the $600 a week sort of supplemental top-up payment, um, that was really important because state unemployment benefits vary very widely depending on where you live. So what you might get in Georgia would be very different from what you get in California, for example. Um, but the $600 a week top-up payment meant that whatever you got from your state, you would also get this nationally uniform um, piece on top of it. And that was really a way to try and, you know, make sure that families had enough to get by, um, to keep paying their bills and things like that when we were being actively told, you know, as a public health measure to please, you know, stay home. So who was left out? I mean, were you able, and I guess I'd also like to know how you, how you captured that, you know, what you've described as something that was robust and needed in the moment. Um, but it, it also must have had huge gaps as well. Yeah, it, it you know, no legislation is, is usually perfect. And, you know, some pieces of the CARES Act that missed people, you know, might just be, again, some of the p things like Zach mentioned, the fact that our existing welfare state, our existing safety net had holes in it. And this unfortunately just built on top of that. And some people still weren't, um, weren't able to access it. Um, but other folks were explicitly excluded. Um, and that's a real problem, you know, in a crisis like this, where there is, you know, no, um, you know, the virus doesn't care, you know, what your background is, what your immigration status is, where you're living in the country, um, things like that. And so the, the policy responses, um, you know, it's problematic when the policy responses do. So for the stimulus checks, we, um, found that about um, 30 million individuals were actually left out of the um, payments. And this would be a combination of, um, you know, there are about 10 million um, young adults, 17 to 24 year olds who are still claimed as dependents for tax purposes by their families, which, you know, if they're still going to school and things like that would be quite common. Um, this, you know, may have been an oversight, but it still resulted in this many children being left out. Uh, excuse me, young adults um, being left out. Another five million older adults who are also claimed as dependents. These are usually folks who have health issues and may not be able to live on their own, which is why their family member might be their carer, and that's kind of where there's that tax-dependent relationship. Um, they were also excluded. Um, the, another 15 million who were left out would be um, members of immigrant families. And so this might have been a case where um, hmm. there was, you know, sort of mixed immigration status. Everyone might have been a citizen or a green card holder, except one of the parents in the household. But the CARES Act was written in a particularly harsh way in this respect, because if just one member of the household did not have a social security number, no one in the household was able to receive the hmm. stimulus check. Um, you know, we know that this is affecting, you know, like mostly U.S. citizen children and things like that. And this, this, um, this affected, you know, millions. And it, it didn't matter what state you were in. Um, you have immigrant families in every state in the country and in every community. Um, and then there were also just some who were at risk of not, of not um, receiving the stimulus checks, even if they technically qualified. So, um, some colleagues at uh, the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities and the New America Foundation identified about 12 million folks who might have been at risk of not receiving their stimulus payment, basically because they may not have been in the tax system in, in the most recent year. So they may not have earned enough to have to file federal taxes. They may have changed their address. They may, you know, not have a direct deposit. You know, all of these things that that once you start putting on extra hurdles, and people have to kind of proactively get in touch with the IRS to apply for the payment, it becomes that much more difficult. And you know, especially if you're talking about, about folks who may not have access to Wi-Fi and all of these things, may not even know that they mm -hmm. had to apply for it. Um, 
you know, unfortunately, that might have been some of the people who are the most economically vulnerable as well. Just to follow up on a couple of things that, that you said. So you just one type of household you described would have maybe two immigrant undocumented parents in the house. And because there's no social security number, mm -hmm. but they might have children who are citizens. Right. And so they didn't receive any. Right. Yeah. The household would receive nothing. Yeah, it could even have been that, you know, one of the spouses was a U.S. citizen, too, and it just happened that just one one of the adults didn't yeah. have a Social Security number and no one in the household would receive it. I want to ask you kind of a federalism question, and, and either Megan or Zach, whoever wants to pick this up, that, um, because states and, and even down to municipal level um, often have social welfare services and they have emergency reserves that they that they use or, or do they? And so help me understand that a little bit because my assumption is a state like Connecticut or, or New Jersey, Massachusetts, where you have a sort of a state level social contract um, that might be quite different from Alabama or Florida or Texas, that you maybe in low income families in those states might've fared better. That's a working assumption I have and maybe you can tell me it's the wrong assumption, um, but this sort of tension between states, cities, and the federal government throughout this pandemic has been a defining feature of this thing. Does that also extend to this discussion about poverty? It does. Uh, there's two major programs uh, to keep in mind. Uh, well, there's more than two. We could talk about Medicaid, but I'm going to talk about two income support programs to keep in mind that are primarily administered at the state level and that particularly matter in a context such as the one we're in now where a lot of families are struggling to get by. The first is unemployment insurance. Uh, each state administers unemployment benefits to individuals who lose their jobs. And it's a simple fact that some states were better prepared than others to handle the large influx of unemployment insurance uh, applicants at the start of this pandemic than other states. In certain states, Florida is a good example. Uh, many individuals who applied for UI benefits had to wait weeks, if not months, to get the unemployment benefits that they were entitled to. And you can only imagine the pain and suffering that occurred during those weeks and months when they didn't have that income support at all. Uh, in other states, uh, Kansas, we talked about at the start of the show, I mean, you call the unemployment hotline on a certain day of the week, depending on the first letter of your last name. It's Florida, where lines were forming outside the UI offices because the web and phone systems had broke. A lot of states just weren't prepared to meet the demand. Of course, the benefits often vary too, though that $600 top up from the federal government smoothed over a, a lot of those differences. The other state level program that's particularly relevant right now is Temporary Assistance for Needy Families or TANF. Many people know it as welfare or from the uh, 1990s, part of welfare reform. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, cash assistance from TANF is hard to find these days and red and blue states alike. Over the last uh, two decades, the share of states TANF budgets that goes to cash assistance as opposed to other priorities has declined from about 70% to around 20% today. So only about a fifth of states TANF budgets is actually going towards cash support to lift the incomes of uh, low-income families out there. In some states, more than 10 states in fact, it's below 10%. And what that means, if you are a low-income family, you're a parent with a child who just lost his or her job, and you need cash support, it's increasingly difficult in a lot of these uh, Some states more than others, again, but across most states, it's increasingly difficult to go and apply for TANF benefits and to get the cash assistance that you need. Instead, states are largely spending those funds on a large list of alternative programs and services, uh, some scandalous in Mississippi, some of those funds going to uh, private volleyball courts for universities, and other states just going towards other programs like foster care or health services that we know are important, but at the same time, just aren't the same as direct cash assistance to families in need. So unfortunately at the state level, the safety net is uh, not in great shape. And that's why we need that federal government to, to step in and provide that extra support. Yeah, uh, one extra piece I'll just add there is, is um, you know, especially in a crisis like this, the, the federal government plays a crucial role because a lot of states um, can't run deficits um, or, you know, they have balanced budget requirements and, and all these different types of things. So even if the state would actually 
love to, you know, create a new emergency program for families, um, things like that. Um, they are sometimes just actually can't can't do it logistically speaking, and so that's when the federal government is really needed here. I, thank you for that explanation because that has been one of the themes uh, we hear a lot about. Of course, the important role. Uh, states play uh, in disasters. Our entire disaster relief system is built on a it's often uneasy relationship between the state and the federal government. But I think we're going to look very hard at that. We are people already are right now, and when this disaster is over, um, because as you were just saying, Megan and Zach as well, there's just some things state. There's assumptions we have about state capacity that we find out actually are not good assumptions sometimes. And then also there are just um, some issues of national coordination that just can't work. I mean, you know, you think about these sort of various efforts to enforce quarantines or, or public health, um, you know, sort of measures across the border of what I was reading in the beginning between Kansas and Nebraska, and, and they're not, not able to do it. Um, so this federal coordination is, is so crucial. Let me ask you sort of give us a snapshot from late summer then had the worst from the poverty perspective, the things you were most worried about early on, had those eased a bit? Were people move, who had moved into poverty moved out? I don't know if, if your measures allow you to give that fine grain of a, of a read, but I'd be curious about that because there's a, a broader sort of psychological thing that I think for good or bad, many Americans by late August were feeling like, oh, the worst of this is is passed. It seems like maybe we're going to get through this. Okay, the election was coming. There was a lot of talk about a vaccine. The national mood was different in August than it is now, certainly. Zach, do you want to yeah. take that? Yeah, so it's a, a fact that might surprise uh, a lot of listeners on the call that despite the fact that the unemployment rate declined from about 15% or higher in April to under 10% by the end of the summer, the poverty rate during that time, according to our projections, actually increased. Now, how can that be? Uh, the simple fact is it goes back to the CARES Act and the expiration of those key income transfers that were part of the CARES Act. So we know at, in spring, for example, in April and May, we had those stimulus checks, but also millions of families were re receiving those $600 a week unemployment benefits. We get into the summer, say June and July, the stimulus checks are now gone but a lot of families still receiving that $600 unemployment bonus, which is keeping them, uh, many, most of them, uh, above the poverty line. Uh, and you get into August, and by August, the, that $600 bonus had expired, that supplement to standard unemployment benefits. And so what we actually see in our data is that poverty starts to rise after those stimulus checks disappear, after the expiration of that $600 unemployment bonus, and by August and September, the poverty rate in the United States is actually higher than it was in April and May when the unemployment rate was higher. And the poverty rate in August and September was higher than it was before the start of the crisis. And again, directly attributable to the decline of the CARES Act provision. And it just goes to say that there's desperate need right now for another stimulus package uh, from Congress, uh, more income support in whatever form to uh, get into the hands of families who are struggling right now across the country. Well, let's talk about that. We had an election. I know it's hard for people to believe uh, because still one side doesn't acknowledge that the election is over, but it is. And we're gonna have a change of party leadership in the executive branch. It's not sure exactly what's gonna happen in the Congress yet, but it's gonna be a democratic house with a narrow Senate one way or the other. What is the likelihood, put on your political calculus uh, or your political hat here for a second, are we going to see a second CARES Act? Is it going to be big enough to bend the poverty curve that you were just sketching out for us at? Megan, do you want to, either, either one. Megan, you want to start? Yeah, I mean, I think obviously that's, you know, um, the question that everyone who is thinking about these issues wants to know right now, um, everyone who has been working hard, you know, to try and raise this issue with policymakers um, all through the summer, um, they had these looming deadlines that were kind of built into the CARES Act expiration dates, you know, front and center. And so 
the $600 a week um, unemployment piece was expiring at the end of July. Um, many folks had been trying to mobilize all through July for, for another package to continue that. Um, we have some more deadlines now coming up at the end of the year. Um, some colleagues at the Century Foundation just released a, a report yesterday with basically some eye-popping numbers that um, starting the day after Christmas, December 26th, um, there will be 12 million um, Americans who are going to be kicked off of the remaining pieces of the CARES Act unemployment insurance programs. And so basically the day after Christmas, um, you have um, basically all of those family incomes going down to zero. Um, unless there is action taken at the federal level to do something to continue or expand or, or build on, on what the CARES Act had in place. Um, you know, it's an open question. As there's, there's clearly um, urgent need for action to happen as soon as possible. And I think any of us who are working on these issues hope that it would happen well before 2021, but the clock is ticking and the window of opportunity is narrowing. So, um, you know, if it ends up being early 2021 that this happens, then again, we just hope that the um, action taken is of a scale to meet the need. And so as researchers, what we're trying to do is, um, you know, work with so many others in the field to try and really show the depth of um, the depth of the emergency that, that families are facing right now. The argument for expanding the social safety net in a disaster or not in a disaster is pretty much bread and butter democratic politics. I'm curious to know when the case is successful um, for representatives and senators who are coming from red states, states that went for Trump, what are some of the more compelling arguments that get made in, in that case? I think simply put, this is a health and an economic crisis that is not limited. It's not confined to red states or blue states. This is a crisis that is affecting every state alike. Uh, I know maybe early on in the pandemic, you know, there were some states uh, that were hit particularly hard, you know, right. New York and, and Washington, perhaps first. Uh, but if you look at the numbers now, it's it's universal across the U.S. Urban, rural, red state, blue state. Uh, it's not discriminated at all, depending on one's political affiliation. The poverty numbers we see aren't confined to one type of state or another. If you look at the food insecurity numbers, uh, families with children all across this country in particular are struggling. I think, uh, well, yeah, I'm, I'm not a political scientist, so I have, I have no idea what the politics on this are, but I, I think the simplest point to make is, is, is exactly that, that this is a universal problem. It's affecting just about every family in this country, some more than others, of course, and urgent action is needed uh, in just about every single state to make sure that families can put food on the table and afford to get uh, to make ends meet. I mean, I think that's a, a totally compelling argument. And I guess I, sh I should have asked you this earlier, but the, do you see strong differences between urban and rural in situations um, in what you're looking at now? I mean, maybe you could say in a state that has a less urban and a more rural population, if it's hasn't, if the poverty is not as high there, you could understand the political calculus of not getting, but I'm just trying to puzzle through why anybody would be a against this when we're in the midst of a disaster we have not seen in this country in three generations? Scott, it's a, it's a great question and one that I'm puzzled by as well. Uh, you know, again, maybe early on, uh, if you look at some of the unemployment concentration, uh, if you look at where schools were closing in April and May, um, and even now, you know, of course, a lot of times this is more concentrated in urban areas simply due to the fact that there's higher risk of transmission a lot of times, or at least that's what the perception was maybe uh, prior to recent months, that uh, you know there's just greater risk when you're exposed to that many more people every day. So it's true that if um, you know schools shut down or if 
gyms shut down, restaurants shut down, that affects disproportionately more individuals who are in urban areas relative to rural areas. But again, the numbers we've seen over the last few months sort of put to rest any large distinction between the two, that rural areas are suffering, uh, suffering immensely right now with the health crisis, but also the economic crisis. And, uh, you know, again, this is not a, uh, a, a pandemic or a recession that is confined to one type of place or another. So uh, it's a great question you raise, and I'm also uh, a little bit stumped by the, uh, the yeah. lack of response. And I think um, getting back to some of the things that Zach had also covered earlier in terms of the fact that what our safety net looked like before the crisis, you know, really varied very much state by state sometimes. Um, some states had, you know, sort of more comprehensive set of supports in place or, you know, unemployment uh, benefits at a higher level or, or, or things like that. Um, and, you know, some of some states that, you know, didn't have um, hugely generous or hugely, you know, comprehensive safety net programs beforehand, there's still immense need here. You know, we still there's still high poverty rates, there's still high rates of job losses, and there's still high rates, unfortunately, and really sadly of, you know, continuing infections. And so, um, you know, in those states where there's not a ton of sort of local infrastructure in terms of the um, you know, sort of existing set of safety net programs. Um, the need doesn't go away, but it means that, you know, families are trying to turn to um, more informal set of supports, you know, mm -hmm. friends and relatives, um, mm -hmm. uh, religious, you know, organizations, um, charities and food banks and things like that. And I think once one of the most consistent messages that you know, we've been hearing, I know every time I turn on the radio, there's an interview with someone who runs a, a food bank in different parts of the country. And they're saying that yeah. the, they've never seen this type of need before. There's, um, you know, pictures on the TV of cars backed up for miles waiting for, um, for food. People are crossing state lines and things like that to get to an area where they think there might be more. But, and the charities are saying that they can't do it on their own. You know, they're happy to step in and they're happy for you know local donations to try and support their work. It's it's crucial, but the scale of this problem of this disaster um, is really just um, too huge, and it's nationwide. And so it, it has to be a, a nationwide and, and federally led response. I'm talking to Megan Curran and Zach Perlin on COVID calls today. They're from the Center for Poverty and Social Policy at Columbia University. We're almost up on time. I'd like to get a couple more quick questions in, if you don't mind. One is, um, you know, one of the unfortunate things that we're already learning about COVID-19, and I think we're going to learn a lot more about it as we get into next year, is the many different aspects of the disease, which we don't have a good handle on, the sort of long-haul COVID people who are sick or unable to work over long periods of time, connected with the mental stress um, for people who maybe suffered, they're not sure they had COVID, family members grieving, this is going to have, this is tearing a big hole in the fabric fabric of the United States. I wonder if you have historical models or how you think about the sort of long-term economic impact of, of this in terms of poverty, because at some point the government will say, well, the pandemic is over. The World Health Organization will say, yeah, we're below the threshold, the pandemic is over. But I will not be convinced, and many who study disasters will be looking for much longer term impacts of this. How do you think about that problem? I mean, you're absolutely right. We There's an abundance of evidence out there from uh, prior disasters or recessions, to be more precise in our case, and also just what it means to be exposed to persistent poverty or, or deprivation, particularly what it means for children who are in homes where there's not enough food in the refrigerator, where a parent loses a job and doesn't get adequate income support to offset that last income. We know those children are less likely to finish high school. They're less likely to get a university degree. They're less likely, they're more likely to, to live in poverty themselves in uh, adulthood. And right now we know there's many millions more children experiencing those types of conditions in the U.S. than there was before the start of the crisis. But we also know from the last recession, uh, the Great Recession 2008 to 2010 or so, that 
again, scarring effects for a lot of young adults entering the labor market around that time who will see losses in wages that you know, they will not recuperate throughout their lifetime. So across the board, there are uh, direct effects of, of this type of poverty on the long-term economic outcomes and social outcomes for a lot of uh, families, particularly youth and, and young adults who are out there right now. Yeah, and I think just to add to that, um, it means that moving forward, coming out of this crisis, you know, even though many would like to try and put it behind them as quickly as possible, um, what we need to pay attention to is that, um, you know, families and this next generation coming up, you know, kids who have been losing days in school, um, young adults who have been trying to transition to adulthood, but maybe can't find a job right now and things like that, but who are tomorrow's workers and tomorrow's parents. Um, we need to make sure that um, there is public investment continues at a high level and maybe even more, you know, um, to make sure that um, there's, you know, educational opportunities, job training, all these types of things. Um, we've seen, you know, tendencies in, you know, the last recession and things like that. You know, we've seen it in other countries and different parts of Europe um, and America where all of a sudden there's kind of then a, um, you know, a push towards austerity measures and things like that. Um, because, you know, I think people get nervous about how much had been spent to try and deal with the crisis. Mm -hmm. But I think this, you know, indication, uh, or excuse me, um, what we know from past things is that that tends to sort of perpetuate the, the, the cycle of hardship um, and potentially, you know, risky outcomes for like children and youth who have been suffering during this pandemic. And so what we want to make sure is that moving forward, we actually make sure that they can come out of this um, stronger than they came into it. I'm so impressed with the scope of knowledge that you both bring to this. I wish every Senator in the United States would take an hour and sit down and have this, this conversation with you. Um, I wanna just in closing out, let me just ask you, Megan, let me ask you first, why do you do this work? Um, <laughs> that's probably the hardest question you've asked the whole time. <laughs> I, know. I never um, answer when people ask me that question. I'm like, ah, ah. so I'm asking you. Um, no, it's a good question. I mean, um, you know, I think I, I, for myself personally, you know, I've been working on sort of child and family issues, poverty issues, you know, for a long time, but it's a crisis right now that kind of really throws it into sharp relief, you know, how critical it is that more people just understand what the state of play is, you know, in, in, in this country, as wealthy as we are, that we had, you know, 50 million Americans back in January living below the poverty line, you know, that two out of every five Americans is, you know, economically insecure. Um, but I think, you know, our center is housed in the, in the School of Social Work. And so many of us at different points, um, you know, have worked directly with children and families. And so we know kids, we have kids in our mind who, you know, have relied on after school programs and, you know, affordable housing and, and um, you know, meal programs and things like that. You know, we worked directly with them and, um, you know, shared, you know, really important things. And so you start to just wonder in times like this, you know, are they okay? Um, what's happening and things like that. And so I'm, it's hard to, 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 you know, kind of deal with the numbers that we deal with every day now. It's even harder for people who are working on the ground because you're seeing such a high level of need. But um, I think it, it just shows how important it is. And we just want more people to know so that, you know, we can, we can improve this moving forward. Well, thank you for that. Zach, same question to you. Yeah, it's a good question. I'll just add to, to what Megan said as well. I mean, in, in a country as wealthy as the United States, we simply don't need to see the kind of poverty and hardship that we do. Uh, I completed my PhD out in Belgium. Megan completed hers in, in Ireland. We both have been exposed to some other high-income countries who uh, find ways to reduce poverty to a much greater extent than we do here in the United States. And I think, uh, you know, whether you spend time in these countries or not, you can just look at the statistics over there and try to puzzle together why the United States, a country that's much wealthier than some of these other countries we're talking about, struggles so much to reduce poverty, to reduce hardship, to reduce homelessness. Uh, we know it doesn't have to be this way. And uh, providing the evidence and looking at the evidence, looking through the, st the statistics and tracking them over time 
is an important part, we think, in feeding the policy process and the political process. So I think that's part of the reason I, I uh, do what I do. And, uh, you know, we hope that that's not all in vain. And, uh, but yeah. Well, we need this part. work and we're going to need you to not take any breaks. Um, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> Uh, because I think we're not even halfway uh, in in this disaster. It's a it's a weird timeline for a disaster in, in America in that regard. Uh, and so thanks a lot for the work you do. And thanks for your time today. I want to remind everybody you've been listening to COVID Calls. You can catch COVID Calls every weekday, 5 p.m. Eastern time. Today, my guests have been Zach Perlin and Megan Curran, who are researchers at the Center for Poverty and Social Policy at Columbia University. Zach and Megan, thanks a million for your time today. Thanks, thanks so much. again. And thanks for the spotlight on this issue. Stay healthy, everyone. We'll see you tomorrow, five o'clock.